Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and it is on page 991 in your pew Bible, or if you're hunting through your Bible, it's in the New Testament among all the T's, Thessalonians and Timothy's and Titus. Um, We just last week started a new series on this Paul's letter to a young minister. We saw last week that the letter was written so that Christians would know how to behave in the household of God. It's a letter for the church. Uh, And tonight, uh, through about the next five months or so, uh, we'll be thinking about the ministry of God's church. We'll be thinking about themes like Chapter 1, Doctrine and the Gospel. Chapter 2, Worship and Prayer. Chapter 3, Leadership and Service. Chapter 4, Godliness and Youthfulness. Chapter 5, Widows and Ministers. Chapter 6, Issues of Poverty and Wealth. And a myriad of other things, of course, in the midst of it. Here in chapter 1, he takes up the topic of teaching or Sound doctrine. Uh, Don't let that throw you. Some people uh, spit at the word doctrine. uh, But doctrine just means teaching. (laughs) Sound doctrine means healthy or health-giving teaching. Teaching that restores. Teaching that heals. Teaching that's good for the soul. And that's what the Bible wants us to enjoy and benefit by. And so tonight in our text, he opens with... In verses 3 through 5, the beginning of the issue. And tonight he tells us about the threat of bad teaching and the aim of sound teaching. Let me invite you to consider God's word from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Hear now the word of our God. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. Help us to believe what you believe about the things that we should believe. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. What you believe shapes your living. It has an effect. There's a famous illustration of this, perhaps you've heard it, in the magazine of the Naval Institute. Frank Cook tells the story of two battleships assigned to the training squadron that had been at sea on maneuvers in heavy weather for several days. 
Uh, Cook says, I was serving on the lead battleship and was on the watch on the bridge as night fell. The visibility was poor with patchy fog, and so the captain remained on the bridge, keeping an eye on all activities. Shortly after dark, a lookout on the wing reported, light, bearing on the starboard bow. Is it steady or moving astern? The captain called out. The lookout replied, steady, captain, which meant we were on a dangerous collision course with that ship. The captain then called to the signalman, signal the ship. We are on a collision course. Advise you change course 20 degrees. Back came the signal. Advisable for you to change course 20 degrees. The captain said, send. I'm a captain. Change course 20 degrees. I'm a seaman second class, came the reply. You had better change course 20 degrees. By, the t- by that time, the captain was furious. He spat out, saying, I'm a battleship. Change course 20 degrees. <laughs> Back came the flashing light. I'm a lighthouse. <laughs> we changed course, said Cook. To do otherwise, of course, would have been foolish, perhaps very costly, and even perhaps deadly. To do otherwise would have been problematic at best. And as on a battleship, so too in life. Ignoring what's true and believing what isn't can make shipwreck of our lives. Believe you can fly like Superman and you'll discover gravity is real and a sudden stop can kill. Believe gambling is the smart way to get rich And you'll learn the hard way that the house always wins and your paycheck pays the casino. Believe what is false and you'll you'll waste and perhaps ruin your life. Our parents, our first parents, Adam and Eve, believed the devil's lie in the Garden of Eden and it brought misery and death. Eating from the tree when God said don't didn't make them like God like the serpent said it would. It made them foolish and disobedient, dead in their sins, walking in darkness and children of wrath. And that's the devil's aim for us. Jesus said of the devil in John chapter 8, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character For he is a liar and the father of lies. But Jesus came to undo, even destroy the works of the devil. And he came to rescue us from the destruction of lies. And so in that same chapter in John 8, he said to those who believe in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is believing his truth is good, it has an effect, it brings freedom. And so we need to believe the truth. And let me uh, show you what Paul is saying about that here in this text. And let me highlight two main things. In verses 3 and 4, Paul points out that false teachers and teaching must be confronted and stopped. And Timothy has to do that. And then in verse 5, he tells us the aim of 
Christian ministry, ministry that is truly Christian, the aim of that is love. So two things tonight. In verses 3 and 4 in the first place, Paul tells Timothy, false teachers must be confronted and commanded to stop. Notice his language. As I urged you, verse 3, when I was in Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. You may remember that the church at Ephesus was incredibly blessed. The Apostle Paul had spent three years at Ephesus as their pastor. They heard from his own mouth, uh, Ephesians 1, verse 3, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Uh, Not every blessing that you and I can think of, but every blessing that God could think of, God has blessed us with in Jesus, in union with Jesus. It's not that some of us are more blessed than others, and I know you don't believe this. I know you look around and you think those people are more blessed than you are, but, but in Christ you have everything. And it's yours. And I know you don't see it all, realize it all, taste and enjoy it all the way that you will in heaven and glory. But it belongs to you because you are in Jesus and it belongs to him and you belong to Jesus. You are a co-heir with Christ of all things. So it's not that some Christians are more blessed than other Christians. Some are more super spiritual than others or anything like that. God blesses all believers with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Through faith in Christ. Everything good that God wants us to have, we have in Jesus. And yet, so Paul preached that message. He preached the doctrines of God's kindness and grace and truth. And yet as his ministry drew near to a close at Ephesus, he gathered those elders together. And in Acts chapter 20, we know from his missionary journey, he gathered them together and he had to say them in Acts 20 verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. To draw away the disciples after them, therefore be alert. So he says, I I know there's going to be trouble. I know there's going to be false teachers among you, wolves in sheep's clothing. And he goes on to say, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance. So Paul knew that the Ephesian church was going to be under attack by false teachers and teaching as so many Churches are and have been in the history of the church. And what they needed was the word of God's grace. And that is, this is what happened at Ephesus. People were there teaching doctrines different than the apostles' teaching. That's what he says. And they need to stop doing that. In other words, there is such a thing as orthodoxy. And there is such a thing as heresy. There is teaching that comes from the apostles and agrees with the apostles. That's what needs to be taught. And there's teaching that comes alongside the apostles and adds to the apostles or subtracts from the apostles, contradicts the apostles. And that needs to stop being taught. That's what he's saying. And Paul says, we can't deal with this lightly. I command you. 
to put us to command others. I urge you to command others. He uses a military term there to charge certain people to stop. Stop that teaching and stop studying these myths and genealogies, whatever exactly that means. We don't know a whole lot for sure about the exact nature of their error. Some of it had to, had to do with misunderstanding the law we'll see in the next couple of weeks. They misunderstood the place of the law and the gospel. We'll see throughout the book various misunderstandings they had. They, he at one point says that you're believing old wives' tales. So he's going to spell this out more, and that's not our central concern right now. But Timothy knew that what was wrong he was obligated to deal with. What was the effect of this false teaching? Why did it need to be stopped? At the end of verse 4, he, he tells you, notice what he says. It promotes speculations rather than stewardship. Notice it promoted speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. In other words, one of the things it did certainly is it promoted theological interest and debate and discussion with controversies and quarrels about words without ever clamping down on the truth. It asked lots of questions, but it didn't supply answers or speculated at answers. It never settled on what God had actually said and what God had actually done. And so it left people always pondering, but never praising. Always thinking about where they fit in Old Testament legends and lines of families and genealogies. But it didn't leave them thankful that they were included in God's salvation through Christ. See, in the Christianity, we want to settle on something. The stewardship of God, which is by faith, he calls it. In other words, the saving plan of God, the saving work of Christ, and we want to propagate that. That's the stewardship he's talking about. Salvation from God and by faith. In Christianity, in other words, we receive what God has done. We receive Christ and his benefits as a gift. But in false religions, people search, but never settle. They work, but they never accomplish. These are really the only two kinds of religions there are in the world, friends. There's the religion of divine accomplishment, that God in Christ achieves our salvation and applies it to us by grace, and we receive it by faith. And then there's the religion of human achievement, where people work hard to attain salvation by their efforts. So what is the effect of this different kind of teaching? The effect was to attack the gospel. And Paul says that's got to be stopped. It's not true to what Jesus taught. Don't let it be taught in the church, Paul says. All this, I realize, cuts way against the, the spirit of our age, doesn't it? When uh, the spirit of our age wants us all to keep an open mind about everything, right? Every belief, every religious practice, every lifestyle, every well-intentioned desire that anybody holds. Well, we ought to, our culture says we ought to say fine. Multiculturalism and diversity of every kind is to be celebrated and we should reject nothing. But I want to say to you, in, a, in an analogy, the point of having teeth in your mouth 
is not to keep your mouth constantly open, but to bite down on food and swallow it. It's not to just stuff anything and everything in, but it's to, it's to swallow what's good, spit out the bones, and benefit by it. We don't want to keep an open mind about everything. If you have a mind that open, everything will fall out. Nothing will settle. Nothing will ultimately matter most. And Paul here is being very politically incorrect for our times. He says false teachers simply must be told, stop. And stop devoting yourself to, to your studies about these things. That's the first thing Paul says that's basic to the ministry of God's ministers in his church. Now, the second thing, uh, by contrast, in a way, is at verse 5, the second thing we want to see. The aim of our ministry, Paul says, our ministry, true Christian ministry, is what? The aim of ours is love. Paul says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In other words, Paul is saying, look, all this discussion about rejecting what's not true and believing what's true, that isn't to make you a know-it-all. The point isn't to help you win arguments. The aim isn't to make you feel superior to others because you know something they don't know. The aim isn't to make you the kind of person who says about others, well, they just don't get it. Our aim, Paul says, is for you to know the love of Jesus and reciprocate that love to him and extend that love to others. That's what healthy, sound doctrine is for. But you might say to me, but doesn't Peter tell us somewhere, and he does, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Aren't we supposed to learn Aren't we supposed to study truths? Weren't the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 commended because they searched the scriptures daily to see if what the Apostle Paul was saying was true? All true. Yes, absolutely. And at Redeemer, I want to say this. We want to be the most biblically knowledgeable and theologically sound Christians in Siloam Springs If God permits. Why would we aspire to less than that? We want to feed on meat and solid food. We want to learn the scriptures because they're able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We want to teach the scriptures. Why would we do less? But the end goal isn't to be balloon-headed and shrivel-hearted people. People puffed up with knowledge but cold and cantankerous. That is not the goal. Our aim is that we would be warm-hearted, good-doing, truth-speaking lovers of God and others. And notice also that this text shows us that the way that we are saved is not by love. In other words, the way we're saved isn't by loving God and others. That's the fruit of sound doctrine that's produced in our lives. Love is the aim. Grace is what saves through Christ and his work. If we are saved 
by loving God and one another, we're all, if we're honest with ourselves, in a heap of trouble. Would you rise and hold up your hand and stay, say that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself every moment of every day with every breath and all the energy and vigor and strength and wisdom that you ought? No, of course not. But that's the commandment. And we all fall short. You can't be saved by loving, but you are saved into loving because you've been loved, savingly loved. This is what's happening. And that's the effect, Paul says, we're aiming at. And so it's not the attitude uh, of, uh, you know, notice, notice this love. It's not the attitude of... Um, ooey, gooey, huggy, let's all get along and everything's okay kind of love. This is the kind of love, Paul says, that has backbone, the kind that says no to some teachings and some behaviors. It says that some beliefs are wrong and some ways of living are wrong. That's what he shows you in this text. He's just said in verse 3 and 4. Some of those things have to stop, and yet the goal of our instruction is love. So it's the kind of love that doesn't just say, we can all get along and it doesn't matter what you believe or how you live. He's showing us that it is not loving to sit back and watch a battleship collide with a lighthouse and run aground. It's not loving to tell people, I'm okay, you're okay, and God's okay with everything about us, and it doesn't matter what direction you're headed. That isn't loving. It is loving when necessary. We intervene and contradict one another. Now, if the aim is to produce love, and Paul says it is, from where does he see this love coming well, Paul says, I want, you to have, I want you to have the kind of love that comes from a clean heart and a pure conscience, or a good conscience, and a genuine faith. Notice those three things as we close. First, he says, it comes from a pure heart. Now, why would you need a pure heart before you could love? And what does he mean by that? Well, on the one, because we're sinners, and our hearts are deceitful and corrupt, depraved. You remember there was a time in David's life, King David, when he was in love with a woman named Bathsheba. And he took her, and though she was married to another man, uh, he had her husband killed. That wasn't very loving. Could you agree? He thought he was in love, perhaps, but he wasn't. He was in lust, certainly. Love must come from a clean heart. That's why when he was convicted of his sin, what he prayed in Psalm 51 was, God, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Because he knew that he couldn't love God and his neighbors the way that he should unless God did that gracious, renewing work inside him and gave him a clean heart, a pure heart. That's also one reason why we can't be saved by loving God and loving our neighbors. We can't be saved by keeping the commandments because our hearts need to be cleaned and changed before God before we can respond in love. And so David prays for the clean heart. And God in his grace, it's one of the things he promises us, a new heart. And even those who have a new heart 
find that they have to come back again and again to Jesus and say, wash me, forgive me, cleanse me. I've dirtied myself up again, Lord. Cleanse me from all my unrighteousness. And so from that new heart, constrained and compelled by the love of Jesus for us, and energized by the Holy Spirit in us, we begin to love as we have been loved. We begin to love God and love one another. So it's got to come from a heart that God cleanses and God makes clean. Secondly, it's, it comes from a good conscience. Now, what's a conscience? What's a good conscience? Well, we might say it's a conscience that works right, that distinguishes right from wrong and does so properly, that's sensitive to evil and can enjoy what is good. It's unlike the conscience you find in chapter 4. If you want to turn over there, he references the conscience again among false teachers when he says about these who follow deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose conscience are seared. He's speaking of of a bad conscience. And, And what do they do? They forbid people to marry and they require people to abstain from certain foods. Now, why do they do that? They do that because they think spiritual growth comes not by receiving what God gives us in Jesus, but by living miserably to attain God's favor. They think, surely God will reward me if I suffer enough if I give up enough, if I deny the goodness of creation and its enjoyments, then I'll be blessed. And that's how you'll be blessed. So if you want to grow spiritually, they said, do not get married because then you would enjoy the delights of the marriage bed and abstain from certain foods. And the way to really grow spiritually is to abstain from certain foods. And they are thinking improperly at this point because Paul says, they, their conscience is seared. They feel guilty, perhaps, for enjoying what God has created to be enjoyed and received with thanksgiving. That's how he ends that paragraph. We're, we're to enjoy those things. The point is their conscience is sensitive improperly, or it's not sens- sensitive at all. It's, it's seared. It's scarred. It's, it's numbed. It's, it's, it has tish, scar tissue on it. And, and doesn't think rightly. It's not formed properly. And here's why that matters. The effect of an improperly formed conscience is that we won't love people properly. And we'll end up putting people in bondage instead of setting people free by the demands we make of them. The expectations we place upon them. The, the load of guilt we lay on them. And that doesn't set anybody free. They make people miserable slaves of man-made rules that God hasn't made instead of making people the happy children of God's family to enjoy properly before him his good gifts with thanksgiving. They keep people working hard to be acceptable to God by self-denial instead of joyfully basking in the freedom of being acceptable to God through the self-denial of Jesus on their behalf all the way to the cross. 
If you are a true child of God, well instructed by him, however, with a conscience increasingly sensitive to God's truth, you can better love people by not denying them what God has given them to enjoy and by not giving to them what God has denied to them. Like, we might say this, if you're not following me, like the love of a parent who gives his child honey and not rat poison. Because the parent understands the difference and the moral rightness and wrongness and loves and therefore loves the child and gives them what's good and denies to them what's bad. Or like the one who says, wear your seatbelt, you'll be safer and I love you and I care about you, you should do that. Or the one who says, look both ways before you cross the street because we care and because we love. Or the one who says, I want you to have a great marriage with your spouse so I will stay out of it. (laughs) Or I want you to know the blessing of getting along with others and so I'll be a peacemaker between enemies. Or I want you to enjoy the freedom of walking in the truth so I'm going to disabuse you of this lie that you believe. The truth would be so much better for you. Your conscience needs to be properly formed about right and wrong and in agreement with God about these things if you're going to then help others and express love to them. That's why we need this. And then thirdly, he says, this love flows from a sincere faith, genuine faith in Jesus. And I have two illustrations from the Bible for you. Think first of the woman in Luke chapter 7. Jesus went to a party at a home of a Pharisee. He was a proud, moral, religious, knowledgeable teacher of Israel. But he was proud of his Bible knowledge and puffed up, but he had little love for others. And this woman was there and she was a notorious sinner. She brings a flask of ointment and standing behind Jesus, weeping, she wets his feet with her tears. She kisses his feet with her lips and she anoints them with the ointment. And the Pharisee's thinking to himself, if Jesus was a prophet, he would know the kind of woman who is touching him. How filthy, how dirty, how despicable she is. And if he was a prophet of God and godliness, he would never let that happen. That's what the man's thinking to himself. And so Jesus, knowing what he's thinking, tells him a story about two debtors. One owed 500 And another owed 50. And when neither could pay, the lender canceled both debts and let them go. Which, Jesus asks, will love the lender more? Answer, the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says, that's right. And that's her. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. You see his point? She has sincere faith in Jesus to forgive her. That's why she is repentantly weeping at his feet at the Savior who's loved her and come for her. She has sincere faith in Jesus to forgive her, and she's forgiven much, so she loves much. That's what faith does. It produces love in that way. Or think, secondly, of Zacchaeus, which we read just a week ago, I think, in Luke 19. 
He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. So he's at the head of the IRA, IRS. And you know he's probably either feared by most people or hated by most people or suspected of, you know, stealing and strong arming in any case. But he was also short. You know the wee little man Zacchaeus and the crowd was large and tall and he didn't have any hope of seeing Jesus whom he longed to see. So what did he do? He climbed up in a sycamore tree. When Jesus got near that tree, he looked up at Zacchaeus and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Now, why did Jesus say that? Luke tells you at the end of that story because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus did that. Now, what did Zacchaeus do? He received him joyfully. But the Pharisee grumbled because Jesus loved a sinner. What effect did Jesus' love have on Zacchaeus? He told the Lord, half my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. In other words, trusting in Jesus to save him and knowing Jesus did broke out in love, generosity, and repentance. Love towards God and love towards neighbor. So, Paul says, genuine faith, saving faith in Jesus, sincere faith, and a good conscience and a clean heart overflow and abound in love. And so, Paul says, that's the goal of our teaching and instruction. To see you become like your Father in heaven. And what is God like? The Apostle John says, God is love. And so that then must be our aim here at Redeemer. Pray for me in that. Not just that you would know the truth and that I would know the truth, but that we would be transformed by it, changed by it, and begin to love as we have been loved. Let's pray. Father, we pray for that work of your spirit in us. We know that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. Do that. Help us to know, enjoy, and honor Jesus. Help us to benefit by his work and so be shaped. Shaped to love others and shaped to love you. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen.